Welcome back to Talking PFAS Podcast. And if you're joining us for the first time, a very big welcome. I encourage you to listen to previous episodes. I'm a journalist and your host, Kayleen Bell. This is the last episode of Season 5. I'll be taking a publishing break until the end of March as I conduct some more interviews. Before I introduce today's guest, I have some news. I'm very pleased to announce that a collection of my PFAS interviews is now available as an oral history collection in the Queensland State Library. I'll put a link to that collection in the show notes. Today's guest is the second last guest from the 2022 International Cleanup Conference hosted by CRC Care held in Adelaide, South Australia. I have one more interview from Germany and that will go up in the break. My guest today is Dr. Scott Coffin, a research scientist with the California State Water Resources Control Board. This is the agency in California that governs the drinking water and all other water resources. What I think was significant about this discussion with Scott was that from his position working for the California State Water Resources Control Board, he was willing to share openly about PFAS and California's water issues. Here's what he said. So California has a legal mandate to ensure all of the data that we collect on the environment is transparent and accessible to the public. It's a law. Since 2015, the the Open Water Data Act, and this means that any consumer in California or anyone living in California can find out what is in their drinking water. If they have PFAS monitored, even if it's unregulated, which it often is, they can find that information. Since commencing this podcast in 2018, I've not found that same level of openness or willingness in Australia from water providers to talk about PFAS. I believe it's time that the Australian water providers, those people tasked with providing safe drinking water to the public, actually become more transparent about what is in the public's water and in particular advise whether PFAS or other contaminants are present. Now to today's chat with Scott. Hi Scott, it's lovely to talk to you at the International Cleanup Conference 2022 in Adelaide. It's been a big week, hasn't it? Yeah, absolutely. So much going on. Uh, We have delegates from 23 countries here, about 500 people in person. It's been a huge pleasure to be here. Yeah, it's wonderful. And would you like to introduce yourself and who you work for? So I'm Dr. Scott Coffin. I'm a research scientist with the California State Water Resources Control Board, which is the agency in California that governs the drinking water and all other water resources. So Scott, what are you doing at this conference? Are you a speaker or just attending? Uh, So I was an invited speaker, mostly talking about microplastics, but also talking about what we're doing in California for PFAS monitoring, as well as giving a workshop presentation tomorrow about governance of PFAS in general. So would you like to talk about what's happening in California? That would be lovely. With PFAS? Yes, so much happening in California. So I'll tell you where we started. In 2019, we issued monitoring orders to a large number of water systems that were adjacent to suspected contamination sources of PFAS, uh, largely landfills, airports, and municipal waste facilities. And that first round of investigative monitoring really shined a a lot of light on where we're finding the most contamination and where we, we don't need to do additional monitoring where we're not we're not getting a whole lot and after that we took a step back and examined the monitoring data that we had and we determined that in order to get a comprehensive understanding 
of the contamination in the state, it would be very, very expensive. We, we have over 2,500 water systems in the state. And water systems, you mean wastewater treatment plants? Drinking water systems. So we're, we're looking mostly at the exposure through drinking water at this initial phase. And in order to monitor that, it would be many millions of dollars just to do a single point of monitoring. And so we took an innovative approach, which is let's see if we can use the existing data that we already have from many decades of monitoring other things and see if that can inform where we might find PFAS. So we have three, we, we had three types of data that we're using. One is geospatial, so the proximity to different suspected sources. The second is hydrologic information about the groundwater levels and other information. And then we also have decades of monitoring data for regulated and unregulated contaminants. Everything from pH and conductance to a list up to about 130 unique organic and inorganic contaminants. And we used a machine learning algorithm to predict the concentrations of PFAS using those three distinct data sets. And we were able to predict the actual concentrations with a Pearson correlation of 0.67. So you can roughly say that's about 67% accuracy. That's quite amazing. And then what's actually most amazing is the model predicted where you'd find concerning levels of PFAS, so above the US EPA's health advisory limit, with a 91% accuracy rate. Basically, this would save us so much money and time because Because after monitoring, let's say, if we randomly chose 600 of these water systems, we would only get about 30% of the contaminated sites. And we still have much more monitoring to do. But with this model approach, after 600 water systems, we would have already gotten 85% of the contamination in the state. And that way, you know where to focus your efforts, your time, and the money. Absolutely. Is that why you chose to do it that way? That was the original intent. And it was actually, curiously, this was not born directly out of a government initiative. This actually happened organically through an event that we hold annually called a hackathon. What this is, is a three-day event. It's an open invitation for anyone, really, from the public. But we often get a lot of people from academia, some people from consulting and industry, as well as government. And And at this event in 2019, one of our own government employees that was working on something completely different came to us and said, hey, what if we use a machine learning model to do this? And by day three of the hackathon, uh, we had a working model and we were able to use it. It's been further optimized and we're actually exploring how to use this in a government setting. Fantastic. So have you got a patent on this? It's not a patent, but we do have a a peer-reviewed paper that people can find the model. What's the name of the paper? It's by Sarah. Beth George and Atre Drixit. It's a machine learning approach to predicting PFAS. Okay, if you send me the link, I'll put a link in the podcast for the listeners, okay? Very good. Are you the first state in America to be using this technology, this machine learning? For this specific application we are, but we have used machine learning models to direct monitoring for lead contamination. Okay. In the US, we have many, many, many lead pipes, and it's very expensive to go dig up and determine if you have lead. And so there's an an organization that used this model and it saved the city millions of dollars. It makes sense to use existing technologies and adapt them. And PFAS is such a complicated, complex problem. What is your view on PFAS as a contaminant? I think that PFAS is unique in that it's complex and persistent and diverse, but 
it's not unlike other contaminant suites that we already have. It's just a data issue. And luckily, we live in the 21st century where we have modern data approaches. And so we have the tools to deal with this. Right. That's good to hear. Because we hear a lot about the PFAS problem. The podcast episode I just published today, it was Professor Ian Cousins from Sweden and his paper, We Are Outside the Safe Operating Space of a New Planetary Boundary for PFAS. I think I got the title right. But basically, because of the health advisory levels that continue to go down, especially in the US and what the US EPA is looking at right now, because the ambient levels, the background levels are higher than those proposed levels the EPA are doing, and there's associated effects. That's why we may have breached a planetary boundary for PFAS. But it's nice to hear with a problem like that that there are lots of people, especially at this conference, working on solutions. And what you just said is really important, that we do actually have the tools to deal with this. Yeah, I think we do. This isn't new. Treating contaminants as a class is not in any way new. We did this for PCBs in the 1970s. Right. And TCEs? And TCEs. Using the toxicity equivalency factors, those are generations old and in textbooks. And luckily for PCBs, they all acted through the same mechanism, through the aryl hydrocarbon receptor. Unfortunately, PFAS have many different mechanisms of toxicity. And persistence? And the persistence and the toxicokinetics are vastly different for each of them. Yeah, and the mobility too. Exactly. So what you're describing, we know what drives the toxicity. We just need more data and to be able to fit it into an adequate model to deal with it. And I spoke to a previous guest in the podcast and we were talking about there's not much being spoken about with dose and response so we're hearing a lot about source control cleaning up contaminated sites but we're not actually understanding what does it mean for the general population if we have these low levels of PFAS we we kind of expect that people that are highly exposed like firefighters people that are living in a community where PFAS has affected the groundwater Uh, more highly exposed than the general population. What's the level of concern in California over PFAS chemicals? By level of concern, do you mean by the government? I know your government is doing a lot on it because I think you have quite low levels with your drinking water standard. Statewide, we have very low levels. What is your levels now? Oh, oh, you mean for the standard? We have seven parts per quadrillion for PFAS, and then it's one part per trillion for PFOA. That's right. They're some of the lowest in the country, aren't they? Right now, it is the lowest in the country, but it's slightly above the USCP. Yeah. What the US EPA is proposing? Or oh, sorry, the interim health advisory level. Yeah. PFOA and PFOS is just interim at the moment. Those levels that you're talking about, are you finding that most of the drinking water providers are way above those levels? For the most part, no. We're finding very low contamination overall, which is very good. Right. I mean, I've heard stories and read articles where it's estimated that a, I think it was 192 million people in the US are drinking PFAS-impacted water. Have you seen that headline? Yes. Have I got the numbers right? Yes, and that's just based off of very small samples. And what do you think of those sorts of headlines? I think that the public needs to be aware and more engaged with their environment and their government. And while those type of headlines can cause fear and unnecessary anxiety in some cases, it can also instigate change, which is what we need. We need the public to be actively engaged with their locales and their data and have access to that information. Okay, because this is something, as I've done this podcast, and people ask me, what do I do? And I say, I'm a journalist. I've got a couple of podcasts. 
that I've got one on PFAS, what's that? And I say, go listen. And then when they find out what PFAS is, they say to me always, well, what can I do about it? And I would really like to give them the answer to that question. So I'm going to ask you, what can the people do about it? I would say there's three things that the average person can do. The first is to learn what it's in and try to avoid the products that have high concentrations. The old wives' tale of be wary of the Teflon pan, they're on to something, right? Yeah. And we have some amazing databases out there that are cataloging what products have PFAS and what don't. PFAScentral.org yes. is a fantastic resource that everyone should be aware of. I've seen it, and you even have makeup on there, cosmetics. Yeah, Clearia is another one uh, that's, that's doing that for, for specifically for cosmetics. And the second thing is hold your communities accountable. Hold your government and your corporations accountable. And your water provider? Absolutely, yes. So recently I've seen a petition for REI to phase out PFAS from their products, and REI is listening. And what is REI? REI is a company that sells clothing and sports equipment for outdoor use. So they sell a lot of uh, Gore-Tex jackets and, and other stain and water-resistant products. These chemicals are absolutely magic. We're going to have to make compromises in our lives to live without PFAS. And for some things that will be trivial, like wearing board shorts that stay wet for a while. And for other things, it may not be trivial. In the medical environment, we may actually truly need PFAS around. Because they're used in stents even. Exactly. So the concept of essential use is absolutely integral to that. But in lieu of having government act more quickly on this, we can hold our companies accountable through petitions and, and, and boycotts. Right. And joining with NGOs. Absolutely. Are, are you part of an NGO? I'm not, but I work closely with the Green Science Policy Institute out of Berkeley. Dr. Arlene Bloom has been working on PFAS for many years. Yes, I've heard her name before and I've heard that institute's name before. I think the good thing is, like you said before, not only have we got the technology, but we've actually got the information and it's rapidly growing all the time on PFAS. There is no limit to information. I'd never run out of people to interview for the podcast, right? This issue is complex, but we do have the skills to solve it. Absolutely. Yes, I think that gets to the third point that I was trying to make, which is tell people about it. It's fun dinner conversation. It's not the most exciting or like uplifting, but it's a heck of a story. It's a, an existential threat. I tell people about it and you've usually got between one to three minutes before their eyes glaze over and you know they don't want to hear anymore. It's one more thing to worry about. Yeah, but I think people, when you give them the tools and the resources to do something about it, in addition to telling them about the problem, that is what is important. So what is the California State Water Resources Control Board? What is your workplace doing <laughs> to educate people and to put information in their hands to make good choices? So California has a legal mandate to ensure all of the data that we collect on the environment is transparent and accessible to the public. Right. That's a law. It's a law. Since 2015, the, the Open Water Data Act. And this means that any consumer in California or anyone living in California can find out what is in their drinking water. If they have PFAS monitored, even if it's unregulated, which it often is, they can find that information. However, it's not every state would have to report PFAS because it's unregulated. Right. Uh, in California, even unregulated chemicals have to be reported to consumers. It's is PFAS regulated in California? I would say it's pseudo-regulated. We have our own regulatory structure that is 
completely unique and distinct from the rest of the United States. Right. And so we have something called a notification level and a response level, which is in lieu of having an actual maximum contaminant level. And each of those have different requirements associated with them that water systems must do if exceeded. And that's something that we can issue very quickly in response to an emerging contaminant that we're still figuring out exactly how much is too much for human exposure, as well as what type of technologies should be used to treat it. What do you think is missing then on a widespread scale to helping make water safer to drink and people to have confidence to drink their water? I think it's the awareness of what's actually in their water and the risk associated with that. So many times governments, especially in the United States, have failed their citizens. Flint, Michigan. Yes, I've talked to Garrett Allison, reporter from Michigan in my podcast couple of times. I bet he has a lot to say about He does. It wasn't a good connection, wasn't super clear audio, but he has a lot to say. Yeah. And that sticks in people's minds and it's very difficult to gain someone's trust when it's been lost. And the only way that we can do that is by demonstrating that we are trustworthy as a government institution, as a water provider, as well as NGOs, even consultants, they have the obligation to demonstrate to the people that information that they have is accessible and transparent and reliable. And the water's safe to drink. I mean, at the end of the day, we know that PFAS has been linked to some kidney effects, but I know for a fact residents in Australia that I've talked to personally don't drink as much water anymore because they don't feel safe. So if you long-term don't drink water, you're going to end up with kidney problems. Exactly. Also, what is the alternative? So not drinking water, well, that's, that's a pretty poor alternative. I really like water. Do you worry about your water sources or do you have full confidence in what's coming out of your tap? I do have full confidence because I check it. I have access to the data, just like anyone in California, and I check it. But not everywhere in California has clean and safe drinking water. There are many communities, especially in the inland disadvantaged parts of California, that absolutely do not have safe drinking water. Okay. So in those communities, is the water resource board that you work for, are they doing anything to educate those people about home filtration or other filtration devices that might help them have safer drinking water? Exactly. So we have a legal mandate, again, that if the water is unsafe to drink, we have to provide them the means to get them clean water. And oftentimes for very small water systems, under 100 people, the cheapest option is to install a filter in their home. Reverse osmosis. Yes, or whatever the best technique is for that particular contaminant. Sometimes it's ion exchange resin or granular activated carbon. And in other cases, for larger communities, it may be cheaper to actually ship in water. So bring in trucks of water. Or in some cases, uh, we do actually provide bottled water. But that is very much a last resort. Now, these areas that you're talking about, those measures... Is it PFAS contaminating those water sources or other things? In those cases, it's almost always hexavalent chromium, arsenic, or nitrates. Those are the three main big baddies that we have in California. So in your opinion, do you feel like they're way worse than PFAS? We have more widespread contamination uh, of those chemicals in California than we do with PFAS. Where we find PFAS is where we also find a lot of other chemicals, typically. Uh So one thing that is quite unique about California's Environmental Protection Agency is that we have quite a number of individual agencies that are able to impact what goes into the environment and humans. And 
each of those bodies typically works together sort of loosely. We exchange information on, on what we should be concerned about and, and ask each other to help each other out in certain ways. But in the case of PFAS, it hit us so fast and so hard as a, an organization that it's forced us to work together more closely than we ever have before. And from that, we, we have become more stronger and resilient as an environmental protection agency. For example, we are finding PFAS in the blood of people in certain areas in Los Angeles and California, and that is instructing the, the, a different organization, the State Water Board, to monitor for those particular contaminants in their drinking water where, where otherwise we wouldn't have been monitoring. So we're, we're, we're using information from different agencies, and that, all that information is coming back to another program uh, called the, the Safer Consumer Products Program of the Department of Toxic Substances Control who is then implementing restrictions on what can even go into products hitting commerce. So currently they have a restriction of 100 parts per million of, of total organofluorine in uh, food packaging. Yeah. Um, and they're also considering a restriction for carpets and rugs as well as other textiles. And that sort of feedback that we have uh, between what's going into commerce and then what's at the waste stream, what's in the, the, the drinking water, what's in our food. Having all of that data and those groups talking to each other is really the only way that we're going to be able to handle this. Yeah, exactly. So that's a good thing that's come out of PFAS. A fantastic thing. And that momentum that we've gained from that is now spilling over into other contaminants, such as microplastics. Are you impressed when you come to a conference like International Cleanup 2022? Have you been here before? I haven't been here before. Absolutely impressed. Scott, is there anything else you'd like to add? I don't think so. No, this has been fantastic chatting with you. Yeah, it's wonderful. And the reason I do this podcast is to bring all the different voices into the room because there are so many different aspects to PFAS and the people working on PFAS. So I want to bring them all into one place that's open and free for people to listen to. I love that. Thank you for talking with me in Talking PFAS podcast. It's been a pleasure. Thank you. Thank you. I hope you enjoyed today's episode and a very big thank you for listening. If you enjoy the Talking PFAS podcast, I encourage you to please share with colleagues, friends, associates and get the word out about this podcast. I love getting all the emails from people as well telling me how much you enjoy the podcast. Like I said, this is the last episode today for season five. There is one more very, very short interview from Germany that I recorded at the International Cleanup Conference and that one will go up somewhere between now and the end of March. I'd like to thank you again for listening. Your support means everything. Please go back and listen to previous episodes. There's a lot of information in there. I will be working on also producing some ebooks this year, which will have the transcripts, as many people do listen to these episodes over and over. So stay tuned for that. Thank you very much for listening. I'll see you next time.